Diane and I had the opportunity this week, thanks to the Doves, a wonderful family in our church, we had the opportunity to go over to Shinkatik for a couple of days this week. And some of you know that's the island, or it's actually across a little causeway from Assateague, the island where, you know, the, the wild ponies run. So we had an opportunity to see the ponies and go to the beach a couple of times this week. And I was reminded on the way down there, there are a bunch of those Eastern Shore churches, and they have those billboards out front. And this morning, when I came in and saw that our air condition wasn't on, we didn't see this billboard, but we have before, and I was reminded of that billboard. Have y'all seen it? You know, the billboards that sometimes on churches in the deep south in the middle of summer, they'll put up on their billboard, you think it's hot here? (laughs) Well, I thought about that as the message this morning, but decided against it. Today is the fifth in a series of lessons that we're taking from, look, it's one of the most important books of the Bible. And it introduces all of the most important spiritual themes in the Bible. It's the book of Genesis. We're calling this series Beginnings because it really, it kicks off everything. As I said, all of the most significant themes in the Bible are uh, introduced in Genesis. And really, all of the most significant themes in the Bible are introduced in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Now, we're going to take a variety of different tacks as we go through Genesis. Part of this is going to give us an opportunity to tell some great stories because some of the greatest stories in the Bible, some of the most inspiring stories in the Bible, are in the book of Genesis. There are also some passages, and we've already done this a couple of times, there are some passages that are so important, we're going to take the opportunity of just focusing down on them and picking them apart phrase by phrase and walking through them. And then there are going to be other sections where we're going to take huge swaths of scripture and we'll look at it from a big picture perspective. We're going to do that this morning. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapters 6, 7, 8, and 9. And I suspect, even if you're not much of a churchgoer, I suspect you at least have heard of this story. This is the story of the flood and Noah and building the ark. So we're going to take that whole story this morning, but we're going to back up from it way at a distance from it and look at a couple of big picture theological principles. Theology is our study of and our understanding of God and how he works and how he interacts with his world. And so we're going to look at a couple of big theological principles that come out of that story. When you read that story, this is what God wants you to hear. So we're going to be talking about that this morning. I'm going to say now, and I reserve the right to repeat it at the end this morning. Even though it's hot as blazes and you're fanning yourself, I don't believe, honestly, I'm saying this with the most earnestness I can muster, I don't believe any of us are here today by accident. You know, we come to church for a variety of reasons. Some of it's habit. And it's a good habit. But I don't believe you're here today by accident. I believe God intends for you and I to hear something from this passage today. Even though we're stepping back from it and we're talking about big theological principles, I think there's something for you today. So I hope our hearts and our ears are open to hear what God might have for us today. After that, we're going to kind of swoop in a little closer and we're going to take just a few minutes Apologies in advance to some of you. This is a little boring to some of us, but others of us, 
love this, and it's also helpful in our understanding of the Bible. We're going to kind of take an academic look, just a little bit. We're going to ask the question, how are we to understand this story, really? I mean, did this happen? What are we to think of a story like the flood? And then at the end, I'm going to kind of tell a personal story. We'll step apart from uh, the story of Noah and the flood, and I'll, I'll just give a personal connection that I had to this story. It's a little bit tangential, but spoke to me. And uh, we'll do this by asking and answering a series of questions. So enough of a setup. Let's dive in and let me start with a word of prayer. God, we ask for your help this morning. Give us ears to hear. Lord, we really do believe that we have come today for a reason. So we pray that over these next few minutes, you've already been preparing us and we pray that you would unpack that. God, Forgive us of our sin, and I want to ask especially that you would uh, forgive me and prepare me to be uh, your messenger to all of us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so what are we to learn from the story of Noah? That's our first question. What are we to learn? Two things. Two big picture theological principles. Number one, God's patience eventually does run out. God's patience runs out. All right, the backdrop for the whole story of Noah is God's judgment against human sin. As I said earlier, Genesis 1 through 11 is like an introductory theological primer. They're like the preface to the rest of Genesis and really to the rest of the Old Testament and to all of the Bible. And here's what we get when you look at Genesis 1 through 11. If you sit down and read it in one setting, and I would encourage you to do so, here's what you get. You get God is in complete control. In fact, he created everything. There's a profound sense in which everything belongs to God. Secondly, you learn that human beings stand in an extraordinary and unique relationship with God and with the rest of creation. The Bible uses the phrase that we were created in the image of God. We have the capacity to interact with Him and literally connect with Him. We also learn that our universe is far more than what we can see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. We learn that there is a spiritual reality to our universe that wraps itself around, within, and among our universe. And God is in control there as well. But we also learn that he has an enemy, literally an enemy, and that that enemy sets himself against us as well. And we repeated several times, you can't understand your own life and the things that happen in your life unless you understand that. Then we learn that the normal order of things has been violated. It's been almost destroyed We talked about how the very fabric of the universe has been stretched and torn by the willful discretion, the willful choice, the willful disobedience of human beings. And then we learned that that violation grew in breadth and in depth over time, and it became generationally ingrained. The Bible calls it sin. That word you know, literally means disobey or trespass sin. And from the story of Noah, 
we learn God intends, I think, to make it clear, and certainly the author wants to make it clear to us, Moses wants to make it clear to us, that ultimately God's patience does run out. I want you to look with me if you have a Bible, either with you or on your phone, and if you don't, just listen up. I'm not going to read this whole section, Genesis 6 through 9, but I'm going to read a large swath of Genesis 6, kind of to introduce the whole story to you. So Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 7. And let's go old school and stand with me out of reverence for this part of God's word. Genesis 6, 5 through 7. Okay, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth, and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I'll wipe out mankind whom I created. I'll wipe out mankind from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. You can be seated. Point being, ultimately God's patience does run out. Now this is a theme that will run itself throughout the rest of Scripture into the New Testament And we find this theme weave itself into our lives as well. In 2 Peter, uh, in the New Testament, one of Jesus' first followers, Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 13, I'm not going to say much about this. This is a critical passage of Scripture where Peter takes this story of Noah and he's commenting on it. And God has inspired him to take the, the story of Noah and the implications of it to its ultimate extent. So here's what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 13. First of all, you've got to understand, he says to a group of his friends, people that he has told the story of Jesus and they've become followers. You've got to understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. And when he means the last days, What these guys became convinced of, both in their own heart because God had shown it to them and also through the teaching of Jesus, they were convinced that there was going to come a time when God would end history as we know it. When God would undo the damage that had been done by the generational human sin. He would undo it and he would end it. In other words, it's not the belief of historic Christianity and it wasn't Jesus' belief. that time would just go on and on and on, round and around in a circle, but ultimately God was going to put an end to it. And there would be what he began calling a new heaven and a new earth. And the first followers of Jesus started calling that period the last days. Well, of course, there are going to be people who are saying... Come on, things have always gone as they've always gone, and they're always going to go as they've always gone. Peter's acknowledging that there are going to be people who do that. Let's go on. They will say, look, where is this coming, he promised. Because Jesus said, ultimately, this thing is not going to go on and on and on. I'm going to end this thing with a period, and I'm going to come again and establish a kind of rule and authority and order that we talked about that first week in Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to establish it forever unending and perfectly so. I'm going to come again and do that. Where is this coming? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has from the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So they forget there was a beginning. It hasn't gone on forever. There was a point in time when it started. 
By these waters also, same waters, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. They forget that. That there was this period in history when God said, enough, my patience has run out. And he, he kind of, there was a reset. He hit the default button. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But don't forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years are like a day. You don't ever know. The Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants the opportunity for everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way. And here's the practical question, and Peter gets practical. Look, what kind of people ought we to be? Since we know that the world isn't going to go on and on and on, but there's a period at the end of it, what kind of people should we be? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. And speed it's coming. That day will bring about the destruction of heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with this promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. First of all, God's patience will eventually run out. The second thing we learn from this story is that mercy triumphs over judgment. Even though God's patience ultimately does run out, God will end his patience and judgment will come, yet God is so profoundly loving that his mercy ultimately triumphs over his judgment. It's pretty clear that the author here in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 has Genesis 1 in mind while he's writing this story. During creation, you may remember, God separated the water above from the water below, and, and then he called out dry land, and then he created living things to go on the dry ground. Here, God eliminates the dry ground. And the waters rise to such an extent that it's almost as if the waters of heaven touch the waters of earth and the life is snuffed out of all living things. In other words, this is clearly, and you can tell from the language, this is a decreation. God is uncreating. And yet, in the process of judgment falling and decreation and destruction and deluge, and yet a token is saved. A family is saved. Humanity will get to rebuild because God's mercy ultimately triumphs over judgment. And in this, Noah represents us. I'm going to read Genesis 6, 8 through 21. But Noah, this is right after he's said, I look at the earth and it's filled with wickedness. Verse 8, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, Okay, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make for yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you will enter the ark, you and your sons, your wife and your sons' wives with you. 
You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Moses and the history of humankind and the human race is ultimately saved because God's mercy prevails even over his judgment. And both of these themes will be played out through the rest of Scripture. In fact, throughout the rest of human history. In fact, in our lives. So for you and I, knowing that God's patience will eventually run out, I don't know what that means for you, but among other things, it means if you this morning are caught in some kind of a sinful habit, or if you are this morning contemplating a lifestyle of sin or sinful choices, choices that you know violate your own conscience and God's law, then what you need to do is run, not walk, to the nearest person that you can talk about this with and get relief with and get prayer for and move in a different direction. Because God's patience will ultimately run out on you and me. The second thing, mercy triumphs over judgment, means for you and I that if you are today in a place where you've made those kind of choices or your family is falling apart or you're in desperate trouble, you need to know that God is with you. God is not against you. And that mercy triumphs over judgment. And there's no shame Even if you need to go make some kind of confession to someone this morning, you're making a confession to someone who understands completely where you are because they've made mistakes just as dire. There's no shame. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God will have his way and he'll bring you safely through if you'll climb into the ark of his path and his way. And of course, God's mercy finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus through whom everything that separates us from God was put to death. That's, again, Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 20 through 22. Peter says this. In it, he's talking about the ark. He's referred back to the ark again and Noah. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. This is why we practice baptism the way we do at Gateway. Some of you come from traditions where they baptize children, infants, newborns. We do not practice a baptism of newborns at Gateway, partly because we believe baptism represents our decision to follow him, in keeping with this passage, among other things. This water also symbolizes baptism that now saves you, not the removal of dirt. It's not the act of baptism and washing you that saves you. No, it's the pledge of a good conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers and submission to him. Okay, so God's patience will eventually run out. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is what you and I read. This is what you and I need to hear. This is what you and I need to understand when we read the story of Noah. God's patience will eventually run out, but God's mercy triumphs over his judgment. Period. Okay, second question. How are we to read this story, Ed? Really? How are we to read this really? Like, first of all, I mean, Ed, do you believe this story really happened? I think 
The flood story is the story itself. I think it's a real event communicated in an elaborate poem rich with theological significance. And the theological significance is far more important than the historical specifics. I'm going to say that again, and then I'll explain it. I think this is a real event communicated in an elaborate poem rich with theological significance, and the theological significance is far more important than the historical specifics. So as I said earlier, Genesis 1 through 11 is an introductory theological primer. It is what most scholars of the Old Testament would call prehistory. It's not written the same way as the stories that began in Genesis 12. It's clear with the story of Abraham and the rest of the Old Testament, what you have are stories that are closer in time and person and in oral tradition to the time that Moses collected and wrote these stories down. In Genesis 1 through 11, you have stories that are in the distant human past. And what Moses is doing is he has collected stories that are stories have breached far and wide. There's a flood story in many ancient cultures. I'll talk about that in a second. These stories have come down to Moses, I think, through a line of faithful men and women, fathers and mothers, and faithful teaching. And Moses is communicating, I think, the right and appropriate and real interpretation of real events that really happened. But the theological interpretation, what Moses is learning from them and communicating to us, what God has revealed to Moses and what he's communicating to us are far more important than the historical specifics. That's why I think sometimes Christians get into trouble when we end up defending things in this part of Scripture that we don't need to defend. Because the historical specifics are not as important as the theological framework. I'm going to go further. Hold on. I don't believe that Moses had access to the same kinds of direct sources and stories with Noah as he did, for instance, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So what you get in this story, the language in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9 is very highly stylized. He's not just, you know, recounting a story, but he's gone to great extents to stylize and work the language, again, I believe, to demonstrate the theological significance. So, for instance, follow this. What you have in this story, if you read it all the way through, you have seven days of waiting for the flood. Seven days. The number of perfection for the ancients. Seven days of waiting for the flood. Chapter 7, verse 4. Then you have another seven days of waiting for the flood. Chapter 7, verse 10. Then you have 40 days, another number of perfection. 40 days of the flood, chapter 7, verse 17. Then you have 150 days of water ruling the earth, triumphing over everything. Then you have 150 days of the water waning, chapter 7, 24, chapter 8, verse 3. Then you have, again, 40 days of waiting for the water to subside. Then you have seven days when he waits and sends out the dove. The dove comes back. Then in chapter 8, verse 12, you have another seven days of waiting where he sends out the dove and the dove does not come back. What Moses is communicating to you and I is the perfect amount of time and God's perfect justice has been exacted in 
his impatience running out, and he brings judgment against sin. So you want to know, people, what happened in the flood. Look, you've heard this story of the flood before. All cultures have heard this. This is what Moses is communicating. All the cultures that we're familiar with, they've heard the story about the flood. It was a cataclysmic event. You want to know what that story means? That story means God's patience will eventually run out. And in a perfect way, in exactly the right time, God brought judgment because our sin had gotten so far spread and so deep in all of our interactions with one another, in our connection with God, in our connection to creation, God brought an end to it. And He brought an end to it in a perfect way, in exactly the right amount of time. So what Moses has done is he's written an elaborate poem recording an actual historical event. He's written it beautifully in a way that's highly stylized to communicate to you, don't trifle with God. His patience will run out. This is a real event communicated in an elaborate poem rich with theological significance. And the theological significance is far more important than the historical specifics. But, throughout the story, throughout this story in particular, and this is different, from, by the way, from the rest of Genesis 1-11, through 11, throughout this story there are very specific time signatures. You know, you could read this, it's so poetic. You could read this and think, this is just a morality play. What Moses has done is he's created a morality play to, to demonstrate this rich theological point. It could be the case, but almost definitely not, because in this story there are very specific time signatures throughout. Listen to this one, just as an example. Chapter 8, verse 13. And this again, this is throughout this story. This is recorded. By the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. You get such specific time signatures that I'm convinced, first of all, for that reason, that this was a real, actual event. Secondly, many other ancient cultures have flood stories, which I believe reinforces it. It points to the, an, an actual historical antecedent to this. Okay, so follow-up question. All right, Ed. So what about those other ancient stories? I've heard that they prove that Noah's story was pure myth. I think, as I said, on the contrary, I think they prove that there was a real incident behind the story. The most well-known of these ancient stories, and you may be familiar with this, is the Epic of Gilgamesh. And this was a, a Babylonian writing that was one of the oldest pieces of literature in human culture. Listen to this. The Epic of Gilgamesh covers a pretty lengthy, similar in length, with really some surprisingly similar detail to the story of Noah with some striking exceptions. The hero in the Epic of Gilgamesh story of the flood is, well, he actually has several different names in different accounts, but the, the name that's most often used is Utnapishtim, something like that. And he builds an ark to avoid a universal flood. Let me just give you some of the most important differences in that story and the story of Noah. In the story of Upnapishtim, a pantheon of gods meet together to decide what to do with human beings because, get this, this is, I'm not making this up, because human beings have become too numerous and too noisy. So they're bugging the gods. 
So the gods get together and they say, what can we do about human beings because they're too numerous and they're too noisy? So we need to put an end to this. So they decide to unleash a flood. And once the flood is unleashed, the gods are shocked by how devastating it is. And they're surprised and they can't get control back. And so floods overwhelm everything and kill everything. And they are, in fact, surprised when Utnapishtim survives the flood. They're stunned and surprised, but they're happy because at the end, someone actually survived the flood. What we have in Genesis is a very, very different account, which I believe is a God-inspired recounting of an actual event accurately interpreted. God has given Moses the right interpretation of something that actually happened, as opposed to foreign myths that arose around this event around the world. Here's the point. What we know, you and I, what we know about God, we know by revelation. We know because God has revealed it to us. We don't know what we know about God because we're clever We don't know what we know about God because we go to the right church or we had the right parents. We know what we know about God because God revealed it to us. Paul makes that point in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. One of the commentaries that I'm using for Genesis as we're working our way through this series is a commentary by a guy named Gordon Wenham. And I like what he says at this point. Gordon Wenham says this, Through the flood story, then, Genesis paints a completely different portrait of God from the standard ancient theology. Follow with me. Most obviously, there's only one God. This means that all power belongs to him. It's not shared out unequally among different members of a pantheon. But just as important is the character of the divinity revealed by the flood story. The God of the flood story is still a personal God. He's still in relationship with human beings. But the failings that too often characterize humanity and the Babylonian deities, by the way, are eliminated from God. God is not fearful. He's not ignorant. He's not greedy. He's not jealous. He's not annoyed by man's rowdiness, but by his depravity. It's not partiality, but justice that dictates the salvation of Noah. Okay, Ed, so if this story is true then do you believe the flood literally covered the whole earth? Well, interesting question. This past week, as I said, Diane and I had the chance to go to Chincoteague. And I don't know if you've been to the Eastern Shore much, but that area, Chincoteague and the Eastern Shore, they talk about Delmarva. Have you heard this term, Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia? Everything is Delmarva. It confused me for a long time. I thought they were talking about somebody. But everything is, refers to Delmarva. There is a, a squirrel that's uh, it's not a squirrel. Squirrel. A squirrel that's almost extinct. One of the few places it exists is on the island of Assateague. It is called the Delmarva fox squirrel. And Diane and I are walking along this path one day, and I said, Diane, there is the Delmarva fox squirrel. And we were told in several little spots that you stop and read about you know, what you're looking at, that you should consider yourself lucky if uh, you've seen the Del- Delmarva fox squirrel. So Diane and I now consider ourselves very lucky. Anyway, we were out on the beach on the 4th. It's a beautiful day, and this is Assateague Seashore. 
So we walk out on the beach, and we got there an hour later than we intended to. Gorgeous day, July 4th. We get out on the beach, and holy smokes, I have never seen a beach that crowded. I've been to the beach on July 4th before, and I've never seen a beach this crowded. This was like, excuse me, can you move your towel over, you know, four inches so I can squeeze in here? I mean, it's, it is wall-to-wall people. And at one point, I say to Diane, and here's the point, pause for dramatic effect. At one point, I say to Diane, everybody in Delmarva is on the beach today. Because that's the way it appeared to me. And I'm speaking with dramatic effect. Now, if there had been two National Geographic demographers or U.S. census takers going out on the beach with us, here are Diane and I, two census takers right behind us. They see me walk out. I say to Diane, everybody in Delmarva is on the beach. They might have said, okay, we're not going to put our towels down. This is an awesome opportunity to take a census. We can find out, you know, exactly the demographics and exactly who lives it. We can count exactly the number of people that live in Delmarva because they're all here today. Well, they weren't. Not literally everyone in Delmarva was on the beach that day. I believe the language in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9, honestly, was meant the same way. In fact, there is a single Hebrew word that can mean either country or earth. One of the other commentaries that I'm using about uh, this text uh, through Genesis, written by a guy named Kidner, and he's commenting on chapter 7, verses 19 through 24 in particular. He said this, In themselves... These verses are not decisive for or against a localized flood or a universal flood. Even the phrase, the whole heavens, in verse 19, is likely, on analogy of the chapters overall, to be the language of appearance. In other words, this is how it would have appeared to the author of the ancient Near East, but he's not trying to make an exact scientific statement. The concern of the story is to record the judgment which man brought on his whole world. It's not to expound on geography. So I'm inclined to believe that this was not a universal flood, honestly. I'm inclined to believe that it was a devastating flood on the entire world that the people in the ancient Near East would have known. So, Ed, have you ever had a real personal connection to this story? I'm so glad you asked. That's a fascinating question, and interesting that you would ask that at this point. Several years ago, Diane and I were living in the Boston area, and we pastored a church in the city of Boston. We had a woman in our congregation who had a young son. He was, at the time, I guess, probably four, maybe, and this woman was a fairly new Christian. So she went to a conference some week or two before the incident that I'm about to describe. And at that conference, she heard teaching on what this one conference speaker called generational sin. And I believe this is a profound and a very true biblical concept that sins are passed down from one generation to another. That's why social scientists will tell us that uh, children born into a home where this or that particular kind of action happens, they're very likely to carry on that action themselves. Abuse, alcoholism. I believe that sins of the fathers are visited on the children. I also believe that 
cycle can be broken. We'll talk about that right now. So this woman, we'll call her Helen. Helen was terrified because her husband was emotionally and at times physically abusive. And interestingly, his grandparents had come to America from an Eastern European country. And strangely, his grandfather had been a priest in an animistic religion that worshipped you know, the earth. And they had all kinds of ceremonies that they would perform. And all of the paraphernalia of the animistic religion had been passed on to her husband, who we'll call Bill. And Bill had in their home all of this instrumentation for animistic worship. And, you know, Helen had seen this over the years and hadn't thought anything of it, but she goes to this conference and she hears this teaching about generational sin and she thinks, oh my goodness, my son, whom we'll call Billy, has been the beneficiary emotionally and spiritually maybe of the treatment that Bill has given him and and also this weird family history. What do I do? So she left this conference terrified. So she comes over to Diane and I one day and she's crying and she's very, very upset. And she, you know, she says, "Uh, Pastor Ed, do you believe this? What do I do? And I said, well, Helen, I actually do believe that that's a biblical principle, but I also believe mercy triumphs over judgment. So I believe that God is able to break those things. In the Old Testament, Helen, God often talks about having a covenant with people, and and that's just the ancient Near Eastern way of saying He has a profound connection, a deep relationship with them. He really knows them, and they know Him. He makes themselves known to Him. And I believe that that's not only possible for you, you already know that. I think that's possible for Billy as well. So she says, well, Pastor Ed, what do I do? And, I, you know, do I need to kind of cast stuff out of Billy? Or I said, no, no, don't freak him out. He's four years old. I said, Helen, why don't you go in some night when Billy's sleeping and just lay your hands on him because God hears our prayer and pray over him and say, you know, God, assure Billy, that you are going to protect him and take care of him and that you're with him and that you'll watch over him with your covenant blessings. So Helen goes, wait, wait, wait a minute. She asks Diane for a three by five card. She says, say it again. Well, I'm making it up, but okay. So, you know, I say, okay, here's what you pray. She's writing it down phrase by phrase. And God will, you know, follow him with his covenant blessings and will protect him and will be with him. So that night... Bill and Billy and Helen are watching television. It's time for Billy to go to bed. So uh, Helen takes Billy to bed, puts him to sleep, comes back in, watching television with Bill, and they get absorbed in a television program. And Helen thinks, this is my opportunity. She doesn't want Bill to know anything about this. So she cracks the door so she can read her card. And she goes into Billy, and she lays her hand on Billy while he's sleeping in bed. And she reads the card. I pray, Jesus, that you will watch over my son Billy. I pray that you'll break any generational sins. And and I pray that your covenant blessings will guard and watch Billy. She goes back in, watches television with Bill. 
They go to bed that night, go to sleep. That next morning, Billy wakes up real early, comes in, wakes Helen up. Mommy, Mommy. Helen would tell Diane and I that she didn't know if Billy had ever dreamed before, but if he had, he'd certainly never talked to them about a dream. Billy comes in. Mommy, Mommy. Yeah, what, Billy? Mommy, I had a dream last night. Okay, Billy, what did you dream? I dreamed that there was a big rainbow in the sky. And out from underneath the rainbow, Jesus walked out and he had his hands out to me. He said, Billy, I'm going to be with you and protect you. So at the end of the story of Noah, God says, I'm going to give a rainbow. And that's a sign that I'm never going to destroy the world like this again. That's a sign that I'm going to be patient. Because one day there are going to be some extraordinarily proud and boneheaded people who live in an area that they're going to call Northern Virginia. And they're going to be very self-involved. And I need to be patient so that those people can turn their lives toward me and repent. And I'm waiting. I'm waiting for that to happen. But ultimately my patience will run out. 